Are you ready to manage your work and personal world better to live a fulfilling, productive life? Then you've come to the right place. Productivity Cast, the weekly show about all things productivity. Here are your hosts, Ray Sidney Smith and Augusto Pinaud, with Francis Wade and Art Gelwicks. Welcome back, everybody, to Productivity Cast, the weekly show about all things personal productivity. I'm Ray Sidney Smith. I'm Francis Wade. And I'm Arthur Gelwicks. And we are here today to continue our episode from last week, where we started talking about getting things done, the art of stress-free productivity, and the next step in the workflow diagram, or the final step in the workflow diagram, which is engaging, or the former term, doing. We ended the discussion last week talking about the threefold model of work, and then we started into the four criteria model. So far, we covered contexts and time available. And now what we're going to do is continue our conversation with energy and priority. And then we're going to talk about the six level model, which most people know as the horizons of focus. So let's continue on from where we were discussing last week, which is the next two steps in the four criteria model for choosing work in the moment. And that's energy and then priority. How do you all deal with energy as it really as it is a resource that we need to be productive in our systems how do you how do you kind of manage energy in your own productivity system and or tools yeah well i don't i don't organize by energy it's not the primary criteria um for me time is the primary criteria um but if i have to choose between different kinds of activities um for example, how do I use a time that's between 8 and 10 a.m.? And how do I use it differently from a time between 5 and 6 p.m. or 5 and 7 p.m.? Both of them are two-hour slots. But the choices that I make around 8 to 10 do use energy. They, they, it's not a primary criteria, like I said, but it is an important one. So I, I, I prefer to do my creative kind of work between, say, 8 and 10 in the morning. Between five and seven in the evening, I, I'm not very good at doing creative, not not heavy duty creative work. It's just too much. So I, I have an idea in my mind of when I'm best able to do certain kinds of tasks using a certain level of energy. I, I buy into the idea of biorhythms to some degree. And I realize that each person has his or her own preferences or idiosyncrasies. But I think they're an important factor. I have to agree with Francis. I don't use it as my primary measure and you know, guiding criteria for what I'm going to do and when I'm going to do it. But I do make sure I'm aware of it because I know it can be a major detrimental factor if I don't take, in, take it into consideration. There are certain points during a day that I know I am basically worthless for certain types of tasks. So I have to... Tr I have to plan around those if I want to get the most out of any given day. Am I always successful? No, not even close. But being aware of those and taking that little bit of time to assess my energy levels and then say, okay, this type of work works best when I'm in this type of a mindset or a feel does help quite a bit. It, it reduces the friction, doesn't guarantee success, but it definitely reduces the chance of failure. And for me, I am someone who, who definitely uses energy in, in my world, and I'm actually fairly focused, different than you guys, I'm fairly focused on, on developing for myself a, a system where I'm aware of all of my the biological necessities of being productive, and I really, I fall on the line of, of if there is a a side in that regard that you really need to focus on your ability to be uh, biologically available, you know, fully fit to be productive before you start fiddling with tools and fiddling with with uh, ways in which you can quote unquote, hack your system. And so energy is one of those broad resources that I think can be maligned. If you start to think about it too much, then it becomes a needle in a haystack to find the right thing to organize and categorize. So I've just chosen focus. That is uh, my my ability to attend to the current state of something as my as my 
quote unquote energy. And in my system, I have various tags that allow me to identify how much energy something will need. I've chosen just a three part scale so that I don't get overly complicated, you know, because once you start having a five point scale of high, you know, medium, high, high, medium, then medium, low and low, it just becomes way too cumbersome to to decide what the nuance is there for me. So I've just chosen three parts, high, medium and low energy. And uh, in essence, those actually only uh, require then two tags. One is E plus for me, high energy, and E minus. Basically, I could do this whenever I have low attentional abilities and uh, you know I'm not highly focused. That gives me the ability to look at my, my tasks and say, at any given moment, what are the things that I think I can do if I'm really feeling as uh, you know, we've heard colloquially in the in the GTD world, uh, brain dead, and so some people have a brain dead context, and you know you're filling the staplers, you're sharpening the pencils, so to speak. I use that for when I when I really am in that state of I just need to to do a little bit of mind wandering, but I want to do, be doing something physical. Those are typically going to be the low energy tasks, and this actually matches up with uh, the work of Tony Schwartz and the Energy Project and the understanding of what's called the ultradian rhythm. And so folks should really pay attention to your ultradian rhythm. You should know what it is. Basically, it's a it's a an up and down cycle that follows the, the mapping of your circadian rhythm. So once you identify your general circadian rhythm, then you know that there's an up 90 minute cycle and a down min, down 90 minute cycle that you go through up throughout the course of your day. So that up 90 minutes is when you have high focus and that down 90 minutes is when you have low focus. But that doesn't mean that you don't have energy to use. It's just that your mind takes time off every 90 minutes to do that kind of what we call memory consolidation. It does mind wandering for purposes of pattern recognition. It does problem solving. All of those kinds of creative thinking and uh, higher brain thought is happening in the background. And that's happening when you're in that quote unquote low 90 minute cycle of the ultradian rhythm. So be very conscious of that as you make your way through the day. So anyway, I like to do things physical during that time frame, as Tony Schwartz recommends. And it's really useful to me because I'm capable of recognizing that I'm, I'm there and then saying, okay, I can still be productive in this time frame. What are the things that I can be productive on? And then I just click on that tag in my system and those those ta- tasks uh, surface for me to be able to do that. I don't tag the tasks per se, not not by energy, but I, I use Sketpal to schedule my week. And I, the way I schedule my sort of standard week is definitely based on energy. So the system is flexible enough that it'll assign any kind of task to, or a task to a particular time block. So I have, for example, um, creative time, which occurs on Mondays, Wednesdays, Thursday, Fridays, let's say, for example, between 6 and 9 a.m. And the system, if I tag the tasks with that particular time block or for those four days, it'll automatically assign those tasks to those times. So I'm not having to go and sort of look for the task at the time that I'm about to do some work, the system actually automatically assigns it to that time, um, sees if you have time to do it, and then suggests that you do this task at this time. Of course, that's a big work in progress because life intrudes, and as you go along, you need this knowledge of yourself so that you're not fooling yourself all the time about what you think you can do when you really can't do it. So that's been sort of humbling for me, I guess, as, as I've used that system and progress that I am way less, I have way less bandwidth than I thought I did. That's great insight. Absolutely. And so that takes us now to the next stage of, and the final criterion in the fourfold, the four criteria model. And that is priority. And this is one of those cases where it's uh, such a difficult thing for people to think about, I think, in the in the sense that when all other things are equal, then you need to 
to start to prioritize, which which is what David Allen, I, I think, kind of talks about as, as gut reaction. What do you feel like is the right thing to do? How do you interpret that in terms of how you use prioritization in your own system and the final criterion of the four criteria model for choosing work in, in the moment? Yeah, the, the, the priority I, I happen to use as someone who is sort of very busy and time, time stressed in a way is basically just when is something due. That's the number one priority I use. The due date and the, I, I like to think of consequences of not doing something. No. So if I have to choose between five different items, the, the, the one that I would work on is the one that carries the greatest consequence for not doing it now. And I sometimes look into the future and say, what if there's a disruption and uh, something that's unexpected and I can't do any of the five? Which one would, would incur the greatest cost? So I use, I use a combination of those two sort of ideas to assign priorities. I guess it's a, it's a, it, economists might say it's the, the least damage that I incur from making the choice. Yeah, that's a, that's a pretty common evaluation method I've seen in, in most systems where you'll go through and say, <clears throat> what's the biggest downside if I don't do this thing? And if it's one of those things where, you know, the world kind of falls apart, if you don't do it, it sets it as a high priority and works down. Prioritization is probably one of the hardest things to do in this. Uh, a lot of people will say, oh, yeah, I can just make it an A or a B or a C. I've built systems that have massive algorithms behind them to try and figure out out of a list of 100 projects, you know, what should be first and what should be last. And usually those aren't the hard questions. The hard question is, what's the difference between number seven and number eight? And what put them in those spots? So when we think about prioritization, and when I look at it with, with my own system and with others, I really look at prioritization as breaking into three categories. There's urgency prioritization around, I have time to do something. I need to do the right thing right now. There's external prioritization what does somebody else think is the most important thing that I should be doing? And how does that affect what I'm going to choose to do? And third, factor prioritization. Is there something about the task that makes it important that it gets done? Not that it has impact on me, not that it is important to somebody else, but is there something naturally about it? So for example, you know, is if there's a leak on a kitchen faucet, that doesn't have a huge negative impact. Um, it doesn't have a direct impact on me, but ultimately, yeah, it had, there's something about it because it's a leak. It needs to be taken care of. That gives it a high priority. So I usually throw those three metrics at things just in, in mental computations to be able to help determine if, if I have two or three things that look equal, the odds are pretty good. That's enough to push one of those things up above the others in that initial evaluation. For me, the way in which I see priority is actually through the lens of intuition. And I use the definition of intuition that Dr. Gary Klein uses in The Power of Intuition, his book, The Power of Intuition, which I'll put in the show notes. And uh, he's also written another book called The Sources of Power. You could probably read either one of those and, and get really uh, a strong idea about what he means by intuition. Uh, but Dr. Klein actually uh, researched how all kinds of people make decisions in the moments. And uh, he's he studied with the military. He's watched uh, you know firefighters running into burning buildings and tried to uh, really understand uh, what goes through their mind at the moment they decide, okay, I'm standing outside of a safe building, and now I'm going to run into a burning building to save people. And what what the what the thought process is for them, and what he uh, he learned a whole bunch of things through those kinds of th that psychological research. But the way in which he defines intuition then is past experiences informing your current decisions making process. And that for me is really what intuition is. And so when we talk about priority and, and, and quote unquote feelings, um, I, I, I don't necessarily think that's, that's so much true. We have to 
we have to sometimes overcome negative feelings as it relates to turning thought into action in that particular moment when you're trying to engage with your work. But if you're if you're a GTD or and you're looking at your list and all things are equal, then then prioritization really is knowing what's happened in the past. What can I what do I know about the past that I can use right here in the present to be able to uh, make a good decision and move forward. Now, relatively speaking, if all things are equal on your list at the moment, then you could close your eyes and point at any given thing on your list, and that will be better than sitting there and staring at the ceiling saying, I don't know which item to decide. So really, you have to take some level of uh, some stock in the re- in reality, which is anything is better than nothing. If if you have done a, an effective weekly review, weekly review, and the things that are on your list to do this week are are all the things that are going to move projects forward. So, if you have all of the available resources to do those things, right? Uh, you, you have context, time available, energy available, and now those things all represent things that you can do right here and right now. Then close your eyes and point and start somewhere, uh, but. If you really do feel a sense that you want to be drawn to something, then I say summon intuition, not the woo-woo thoughts of gut feeling or whatever, but knowing that what you what you summon as being uh, a reaction to, to a, a direction on something is actually your brain doing all of the work in the background and saying, hey, let me surface this from unconscious to conscious, a decision. And you should, to some great extent, trust that decision and then analyze the outcomes of those things so that over time you get better with your own intuition. And uh, that's kind of how I see it. And it's worked for me. I feel good about my ability to say, every time I do something, I try to do a little bit of debriefing during my weekly review every week to say, when I was in that moment and all things were equal and I chose that thing to do, did that move me forward in a, in a strategic fashion? And if it was a yes, great. If it was a no, what would have been the better thing to do? And just that little bit of non-judgmental but clear debriefing of the situation gives gives my brain more information and then it starts to build a better intuition. And, you know, having been a GTD or now for you know, nearly uh, 18 years, uh, you know, it's, it now informs my decision making in the moment in those situations very well. I don't, I don't feel any of the anxiety or stress related with, well, what should I do now? Because I look at a list and if all things are equal, I hone in on the thing that I know that I, I, in the past has led me in the most strategic direction and it works for me. So I hope that that starts to build a muscle for you as you start to make your way uh, into using that prioritization formula, which I call intuition in your own uh, system and life. But see, what you just outlined illustrates something that we've touched on a number of different times, and that's the importance of evaluation, of going back and rehashing what you did after you did it and understanding exactly what occurred, how long it took, what was the effort, what was the energy, all the factors around it in that hindsight mode so that you're building up that knowledge base, whether it applies to your definition of intuition, whether it applies to an actual algorithmic reference that you're using. It doesn't really matter. It, it, what it boils down to is give yourself access to that information. Don't waste it. That's the experience is the most valuable, important thing you can have in making these systems work, whether it's GTD or anything else. And taking it, everything you do is a bit of experience that you need to leverage and take into consideration. This leads us to our next topic within the in doing or engaging uh, step or phase of the workflow map. And in GTD, we talk about the uh, six-level model for reviewing work, and uh, this is the uh, the six level model is colloquially known as the horizons of focus, and they cover uh, six levels. 
obviously. And in the original version, there was a um, a use of kind of an airplane tarmac air you know, plane taking off kind of metaphor where David Allen talked about being the, the runway and then 10,000 foot, 20,000 foot up to 50,000 feet. And so each of those six elevations, as the books have gone on and in the latest edition of the book, he has moved to a, a use of ground, basically being on the ground floor and more of a building metaphor. So you, uh, but I'm not sure why, it's building and then horizons. So forgive the mixing of metaphors on David Allen's behalf, I suppose. I I shouldn't apologize on his behalf. But um, the point is, is that you have ground floor, then you have horizon one, two, three, four, and five, right? So there are six horizons and, or there are five horizons, but the ground floor uh, being one of the levels. And so if we talk about the ground level, we're really talking about next actions. And David Allen, of course, defines a next action as a physical uh, you know, thing that you can do that you physically see someone can do. That's what a next action is. If you can look over my shoulder and see me doing it, that's the next action. So we have the ground floor uh, ground, which is actions. We then go up to the horizon one, which is projects. We then go to horizon two, which are areas of focus and accountability. Then horizon three, which are goals and objectives. Horizon four, vision, and then ultimately horizon five, purpose and principles. And what I'd like to do is for us to work our way from the top down. Uh, We don't really need to talk about horizons except to say that that is the horizontal access axis in GTD, meaning that you you do tasks, uh, you know, and they're the things that move your world forward, right? They're the fundamental unit of progress. Whereas once you step above actions, everything else now is the y-axis in uh, in in your in your you know GTD system, and those are non-actions. Those are actually all planning and review. So we can kind of dissect our world in terms of that which we're doing and that which we are reviewing and planning. And so that gives you a little bit of of you know perspective, right? So if we we're talking about um, having control that's in kind of the action space mostly. Uh, and then gaining perspective is as we go up the horizons of, of focus. So let's let's start with macro level here, gentlemen. And what are your thoughts on a, on a macro level about the even the archetype, the framework that David Allen provides with the horizons of focus and accountability? I'm sorry, the horizons of focus. What are what was your initial reactions when you first read the book about this model, and uh, and and what are your thoughts about how you've used it uh, throughout time, Francis? I'd seen hierarchies like this before, and they're valuable and necessary. And I, when I read the react the description of it in GTD, I didn't see anything different from what I read before. Um, it just seemed like a uh, sort of restating the. If, if not the obvious, then at least what has sort of sort of been said by many over years and years and years. I I think we all we all every, everyone naturally thinks in hierarchies of commitment, but it's not usually structured. It's usually just ad hoc, um, and it's often not written. It's often just intuitive, or it's just sort of a it's a dream that you have in your mind. And I think the value is in documenting, measuring, taking out of the realm of imagination and putting it in paper in front of you. And in, in that respect, the, 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 I didn't see anything new in what he he had to say on the topic. Um, I remember doing an exercise like this very early in my career. And... Going back to it, maybe mm, 10 years later, sort of I found it in my materials, you know, when you go back into some of your old files. And I was amazed that the visions or objectives, slash objectives I had set for myself had actually been realized to a large extent, even though I had never gone back to the original paper. I found that really remarkable and a testimony to the fact that when you do fix these higher level commitments and put them on paper and apply some rigor to the process that they have a life of their own and that the process works. When I looked at it the first time going through the book, 
I think I went through this section probably three times in the, in that first reading, just trying to make sure I had my head wrapped around this because I noticed two things right away. One, to Francis's point, this isn't new conceptual. I mean, this has been around, this kind of a structure has been around a long time in a lot of systems. But the other thing that struck me is it just, it seemed backwards. And I, the reason why I, I'm saying that is because if you've dealt with uh, vision and mission planning within a corporate environment, everybody starts from what the equivalent of David's layout is the highest level and then works down to actionable. And he's going from the ground up in the structure. Now, granted, you can plan either direction. I get that. But most people live within those that ground horizon one, horizon two, everything between um, calendar and actions to area of focus and accountability. Getting beyond that is where the struggle is. And the more I read through this, I realized that, yeah, this is that's the cutoff where people are going to trip over this. That's where people are going to really have issues because they because I look at corporate groups struggle with this every day. And those, you know, this is not even things that impact their lives. So there's an analogy I use for with this when I try to explain it to people. I said that one of the things you'll see a lot illustrated with this structure is uh, a plane and the horizons equivalent or equivalent to altitude. So when you get to like horizon five, it's like the 30,000 foot level. Well, think about this in a plane. The higher you go, unless that plane is more and more robust, it's pressurized and everything else, you can't breathe, you can't think, it gets harder and harder the higher up you get. And that's acceptable with this. You have to make that accommodation from the beginning. The first couple of levels, you're going to get it. You're going to be able to work through those because you're living those. It's when you start to get beyond, I want to say, Horizon 3, that's when the hard work begins in trying to get this system into place. So that that was my first reaction. Is like, yeah, this is going to be a tripping point for people. And I would agree that it, it most frequently is either a, a stumbling block on, on the way to a full system. It's also, I think, kind of like your spine without it. You're just mush on the ground. But I also see a lot of people just not doing anything with the other upper horizons out of fear. And that was my initial reaction when I saw it, which was, wow, a lot of people are going to avoid this. And of course, I came with a background of kind of a Covey world, you know, living in the, the seven habits of highly effective people, the eighth habit, uh, you know, first things first, and really immersed in mission and vision and understanding, trying, trying to understand what I was going to do on those really upper horizons. And so I came with that fairly well flushed out. Now, back then, my life was very, let's say, simple and, uh, you know, as in not complex. And so it was so easy for me to adopt the the horizons as they were, because I was able to create lists that were for each of those horizons. And then they were already in essence mapped out for me, I knew what I was doing in each one of them. And so really, it was the next actions and projects list. So ground floor and horizon one that needed the most work when I came to GTD. So that's, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't say that it's easy, but it was easy for me, because of that foundational work that I had done. If you want to think about the the it from the perspective, as Art said, you know, it's kind of like, you know, you most of the time you take your, uh, you know, kind of mission and purpose and vision levels, and those are the foundation of the building, not the upper floors of it. And, uh, and so um, I got a I got an easy break on that one, because I came to it with having done a lot of work in the prior years, uh, covering that material for myself. The, the one thing I, I want to throw in here, though, is that this should not deter people from trying this. Just go into it with a reasonable expectation that this is not the easy part of GTD. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so what I want to do is just explore 
the horizons one by one. Uh, let's let's start off with Horizon One because really, when we think about the ground floor and we're talking about uh, next actions and really your calendar, which is a you know your calendar really is a is a, a fundamental piece of your next action and and ground level uh, work. Uh, so you have your calendar and. Uh, next actions, uh, we then step up to horizon one, which is where you really have your your projects and managing your projects. So in essence, you should have a list or perhaps several lists that then manage. Again, this is in the GTD world. You would have lists that manage your projects. Now, I maintain a master projects list where all of my projects live. And because of the tool that I use, which is Remember the Milk, I'm able to then tag those those projects and then create smaller lists based on a filter on that list to be able to create new lists based on that one master list. So in my system, it's very clean in the sense that I have one list and then I'm able to see, okay, I just want to see all of my projects that are work-related. And then within my work-related projects, I only want to see the ones that are related to my consulting practice. And then I want to see all the ones that are related to other areas of the business, right? So I'm able to see different projects lists, although I maintain a master projects list. And that actually manages to be the same thing with my tasks. I have one task list, and then I use tags to be able to then, uh, you know, reduce the task list down to just the ones that I want to see. And so how do you all manage your projects on Horizon One. Oh, Horizon One project management is is one of those things where, <laughs> unfortunately, it seems to change frequently. This is where, if you're a system tinkerer, the tinkering creeps in heavy, because this is where you have Kanban. This is where you have uh, planner tools. This is where you have any number of different applications out there or, or approaches to saying, I want to capture this. I want to capture that. I'm going to do it. go back to the most basic thing. And this is what I force myself to do all the time. Understand. I have to understand what I need to do, who I need to do it for when it needs to be done. And to a lesser extent, why do I need to do it? Starting with that, that usually helps me define the core of a project. And then I can start to boil it down into the individual actions necessary to the get to the success. Oh, actually, there's a, there's a fifth part to that. And that is what determines a successful completion of that project. Tracking it, I'll admit, that changes for me. Sometimes it's in OneNote. Sometimes it's on a paper and, and pad. Sometimes it's in Notion. Sometimes... I haven't found that any particular system or tool helps it or hurts it. As long as I'm hitting those five points on a project definition, I can start to pull those together. Just to follow on what you're talking about, I have a a clear definition between using project management tools and my project list system. My project lists uh, my project list itself, the the master projects list that I keep, is purely for my internal management. My project management software, which is Trello or Asana or whatever other tool my clients are using, I try to uh, marry to their systems so that you know it's seamless for them. I'm trying to make it uh, work for both of us, but you know I really want it to be as seamless as possible for them, and so that those tools are purely for the collaborative functionality. I'm managing the communications with them, keeping them up to date, and they're keeping me up to date about what's going on with the project, whereas the projects list itself is for me to know what's on my deck, what what are my active projects so that I can actually see what's going on and what's not going on uh, for them, right? Why is there not an X-Action anchored on my actions list for this particular project for this week. That's what that that's for. When I sit down to my weekly review, I can go one by one and I can reference the project management software to be able to say, oh, this is what's going on and this is where we are. And there goes that document link and all of those kinds of things. But I'm not going to muddy up my system by trying to jam project management into just what should be for me a simple list of all the projects so that I have a full and complete 
and accurate view of my world. So I try to keep those pieces separate and the different project management software have so many interesting bells and whistles and useful bells and whistles, but I find that having just a complete projects list is so useful to me by itself. Yeah, I think I went through a similar progression. Early in my career, I would I would define each project and I would have it on a separate page in my day runner and it would have all the different resources and constraints and all kinds of fancy stuff. And I find that I, well, for a few years, I guess, I haven't needed that kind of detail. I just need to know, have a sense of what my major priorities, project priorities are. I don't capture them in any structured way other than to think about what projects do I need to work on this week. And I find that's enough for me at this point. I think the the details that I used to capture way back when, I, I think I now have the habit of understanding what those details are without having to write them down or capture them, like you said, in a project management tool or in a program or in an explicit way. I, I find that it's, it, it just, at this point in my career, it, it would just add more overhead. Not needed. Yeah, I understand that. I totally understand that. I, I will note that at some point in my GTD practice, I chose to create a new horizon. And it is a type of project. And to be quite honest, I think of, I think of horizons uh, two, three, four, and five as uh, that just simply different types of projects lists. And the they just happen to fit at different uh, time horizons. But in reality, they're just projects that need to be managed. And so we we give them a different context in GTD, in, in again, in my opinion. But in essence, I think about them as projects lists as something that is easily manageable in a series of lists. And one of the one of my problems with my projects projects list was that I needed to, you know, the definition for a project in David Allen's world over time has been something that's less than a year and that is more than one step in order to get to completion. And so I was I was in that mindset, right? I want to see my active projects that are moving things forward toward my goals, my vision, and ultimately my purpose. And I was I was having trouble with having all of these other things sitting inside of my projects list that could also really be sitting in my areas of focus and accountability. And so I was having a, I was having difficulty there. And so I chose to create what in essence became my 15,000 feet uh, level. So you can call it horizon 1.5. <laughs> and, um, and what it what it really uh, came to be called for me was programs. And so programs for me or the 15,000 foot level uh, is for me those things that are going to take more than one year and are potentially ongoing. That is, they're not ending, but they're not areas of focus and accountability in the sense that for for me, areas of focus and accountability typically center on the role that I have. So, you know, um, being a great brother is something that is very important to me. I have a lot of siblings and I want to be a really great brother and, and family member. Being a great spouse, being a great business owner, those are all roles and their responsibilities associated with them. But within that, for example, I have multiple business entities. So each one of those businesses is the program. It's a going concern. It's something that I have agency over, and it doesn't really have clear definition of a project completion. There's no, there's no, there's no complete, right? It's either I, I die, uh, I sell the business, or it goes out of business, right? So, uh, what, where do you, where do you put that? And so, I created programs as that intermediary place for me to hold that that thing, and uh, again. You could call it a project easily, or you can have a separate projects list for ongoing projects. But I just needed something that was a container for those. And you know, now I have 40 some odd of those programs that are 
ongoing things. Productivity Cast is one of those programs. And it's a, it's something that, you know, is just going to go on. It's just going to keep keep spurring new projects. So I needed something to be able to look at that. But to say podcaster and and put that up at the horizon, you know, uh, horizon two level, that didn't make sense for me. So I just I give that as an um, as a one feel free to use programs. Um, I actually wrote a blog post. I'll put a link to this in the show notes uh, for Mike Vardy over at productivityist.com uh, about this some time ago. I, I'll link to that in the show notes. But the, uh, and, and you can use programs if you'd like to. But the idea here is that recognize that this whole system is fluid. Use what you need, take from it what you want, just like kind of Bruce Lee's uh, Jeet Kune Do uh, system uh, of martial arts. You you take from what you think is the best of something and you adopt those pieces so that you can have a complete system. And that's, that's what I did with programs. And I, and I really offer and suggest that I invite you all to, to do that yourself. Okay. So we step up to then horizon two, which is, which has been called many things, areas of focus, um, areas of uh, uh, roles and responsibilities, areas of focus and accountability now. And these are the, the hats you wear. Uh, how do you see Horizon 2 and any thoughts, suggestions, uh, tips for people who are trying to use this material? This is a really important one in my book because I think this is the one that opened my eyes to the amount of work I was doing. And still, I still do this now. We have a tendency to focus on the silos of our life when we're in one of those silos. So if we're doing family stuff, we focus on, focus on family stuff. If we're doing business stuff, we're so on and so forth. Uh, being able to look at this as a horizon across the board and start to get an assessment of all of those areas that you have to deal with, all of those hats that you're putting on, and recognize that there's work attached to all of those one can be extremely overwhelming. I've watched people all but melt down as they start to go through this because I've done this exercise with them on, a, on whiteboards where they start to identify all the roles they have. And when they get to about like 10 roles, they start to realize, oh my goodness, what's going on? Uh, it can be eye-opening and it can be intimidating at this point. But it's also probably the most important thing in my book because by identifying the roles that either you've created for yourself, someone else has created for you, you have professionally, you can get a true sense as to, one, are you filling the roles you want to be filling? Or are you doing things you don't have any interest in doing anymore? And two, and this is the one that strikes most with me, is recognizing that those roles are equal. If you use that hat analogy, the hats look different. They, one may be a captain's hat, one may be a farmer's hat, doesn't matter, but they still go in the same head. So even though that the role may be completely different, it's still on you as an individual to be able to deal with it and interact with it, which is in, empowering if you recognize then that your productivity system, you need, you have permission to tune it and define it as a way, as the hat wearer, not for the hat. You don't have to define a system for every hat of this of these roles. Define it for you so that you can apply it to all of these. Because the last thing you need to be doing is jumping back and forth between systems. Sometimes that's forced. Sometimes you don't have a choice. If, if you think about the professional hat or your corporate hat, they may have productivity systems in place that you must use. And that's fine. You have to adhere to those based on their guidelines. But that doesn't mean you can't find a way to make it work with your own system. Yeah, that can sometimes mean a little bit of double work. But remember, at some point, you're going to take that hat off and you're going to put on a different one. And you don't have those corporate systems anymore to take advantage of. You have to have your own. And you need to have constant trust in that system. So whether it's GTD as your core or you're using anything else, doesn't matter. But this horizon level, by doing this exercise and understanding those different hats and recognizing they all go on the same head can be extremely enlightening when you start to feel overwhelmed as to 
all this different stuff that's coming at you at one time. We then get to the upper tier horizons. And and just for time purposes, I'm going to kind of lump these together and then give some uh, some other material that I think is is useful to folks. The the next horizon is you know the horizon three, and this is where uh, goals happen. They are uh, uh, people tend to say that they're you know th- those one to three year time horizons. Uh, you know, so basically anything above uh, a year, but within three years is the kind of goal perspective, and so we would consider them say uh, short term goals in horizon three or the 30,000 foot level. And I like to keep them, again, just in their own separate list. And they just sit there. And there are very few of them, uh, because uh, most things are not in that space for me. That's just my, happens to be my my thing. Uh, Horizon 4 then takes us to long-term goals. And we are at the 40,000 foot level uh, at Horizon 4, and we are looking out at the three to five year range, uh, potentially even longer than that, I'm not sure. But so if we then say, okay, what what's really happening on this uh, further out time horizon than just the, the one to three years? Uh, and this is a space where I tend to feel like there's very little control I have over that space of long-term goals. So it doesn't provide a lot of value to me, but I like to know that I have those goals. They're they're more motivational for me than they are about what I can do about them. And this is natural because the higher up on the horizons, the less actionable those things are, right? You know, you you are you are only able to do that which gets closer to the project and ultimately the next actions level at the ground level. And then we get to Horizon 5, which is your purpose, mission, purpose and principles space. And the reality is, is that this is difficult for most people to answer the the uh, reason for being kind of, of questions. And I tend to answer the questions in verticals or in in groupings. I don't necessarily, and and I'll, again, I'll, I'll admit, I have always had a a purpose in life. It, you know, since this, as early as I can remember, I have felt some purpose, and that's it's very uh, you know deep within me, and I'm I'm capable of summoning that, and I know it, and it's changed a few times over my life, but it's always been there. So. I just have it. I don't know how to get it. <laughs> it's, I don't know how to help you get it other than to provide you resources. Uh, like the, the Franklin Covey has a really fantastic mission statement builder. I will put a link to that in the show notes. I, I just, I don't know that everybody necessarily has those things. So my model for most people when they come to me and say, well, I don't know what my mission is, is to say, choose the various Horizon 2 categories, the horizon two areas of, of, of focus and accountability, and ask the question, why are you in that? Why are you a part of this? Why are you in this role? And that ends up being a little bit easier, more digestible, and ultimately easier to express. So uh, for example, I gave the example of, you know, I, I want to be a great brother, right? So that's my, that's my standard for maintenance at horizon two. And so why do I want to be a great brother is the is then the question I would a- answer from a mission and principles, uh, you know, purpose and principles level there at Horizon 5. And if I can answer each of those questions at the very top tier, now I have, in essence, a mission statement for as, as a as a reigning document of what I want my standards to be in life. And that ultimately is very helpful for me in making it all work. Uh, David Allen wrote in 2010 or 11 now, 2000, I think it was 2010. He, uh, he wrote the, uh, the book with a series of questions that at each horizon you can ask yourself. And I find these to be very useful for people in just getting your bearings in terms of what each horizon represents. And so I just want to go over them very quickly. And, uh, and then you can always find these online elsewhere. I'll actually, I'll just paste a copy. I will put a copy of these questions in the show notes so you can see them in in a table format. 
And so the questions are at the ground level, we start out with what is it and what's the desired outcome? Horizon one projects, is it actionable? What's the next action? And does it have more than one action? Horizon two, uh, then areas of, of focus and accountability, what do I need to maintain? Horizon three, which are short-term goals, what do I want to achieve? Horizon four, longer-term goals, what would long-term success look, sound, and feel like? And then horizon five, why and or how am I or are we, right? So if you're a part of a group, say you're uh, part of your uh, you know, corporate world, uh, you know, why are we? How are we? And that gives you an opportunity to answer those questions at that horizon. So I think those are very useful. Like I said, I'll put a copy of those in uh, the show notes so you can review those. And uh, and and that ultimately is the six level model uh, and and the the whole horizons of focus framework. Uh, as we uh, close out this episode on doing and engaging, I wanted to get some thoughts from you guys about what are some actionable nuggets people can take away from this uh, idea of engaging with your work. What are things that people can really do to engage with their systems, with their tools, uh, with their mindset as it relates to really getting into action uh, at this at this level of their development, whether they're GTDers or not? What's your one bit of advice you'd like to offer to people in that regard? I, I would suggest answering the questions that you just asked. Um, and it, it it's a bit of a once and for all um, exercise, in my opinion, that there is a, as I mentioned, there was a time in my life early in my career where I was intent on answering these questions. And I believe that because I spent considerable time documenting and writing, I don't need to do that anymore because they're, 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 so, they're sort of in the shelf, on the shelf behind me. I know they're there. And I don't need to revisit them very often. But the initial exercise was really important and it, it shaped the rest of my life. And it's, it's why I'm here in Jamaica as opposed to living in New Jersey where I used to live. It, it, it makes that level of difference if you, if you really engage in them seriously as if your life depends on it. So, and and, and we're, it's not something that we're necessarily taught to do. Um, it's a bit of a pain in the neck to do because it requires a level of introspection and some answers may take a couple of years to actually sort of manifest themselves. But I think the importance of doing it at some point in your career and then having it available to you, as you say, having your purpose available to you so that you can summon it whenever you want it, makes you, allows you not to have to worry about purpose and not have to revisit that question because you have pretty much answered it, sealed up the answer. Unless something drastic changes, you're unlikely to go back and revisit it or revise it. So it, it's doing it at least once so that you can be free to engage at, at, in at Horizon, Horizons 1 and, and maybe 2. Yeah, for me, I'll go with two, two more tactical things. One, whatever system you're using, as you identify a task you're going to do, also identify what role you are fulfilling when you are completing that task to help you start to identify those roles. And second, and I can't stress this enough, stop doing tasks just as filling in a, a checkbox. Treat the task as a paragraph in your life history. Someone is going to need to read this. This will be you later on to understand what you did, why you did it, how you did it, and how it was successful or how it failed. That's going to go, go to that whole intuition build and historical data build. So start looking at your tasks as complete things, complete executions, not just a checkbox. Art, if only every developer and web programmer would document as well as what you just said... <laughs> <laughs> no software would ever be delivered though that's the problem because it would be it would be 20 lines of code and 300,000 lines of commented out text within the and, actual and that would be a beautiful code. thing no so. <laughs>
it it would be nice. And that see the funny thing is that applies to so many other things too. And and I don't want to go off on a tangent here, but people belittle the concept of journaling a lot. They go, oh, it's frou frou. It's it's very touchy feely. You know what? It's probably one of the most powerful things you can do for yourself. Because the only person who's going to really, truly be honest with you is you if you give yourself the opportunity to do it. And that's a great way to do it. Walking around talking to yourself is typically frowned, on, frowned upon, even though I do it a lot. Uh, but journaling, that's a great way to do it. So make capturing a journal entry about a project that you finished part of the completion requirements for the project. You know, force yourself to do it. And I think you'll start to find that it really can be helpful. I would agree with that also. I, I recently made a switch from, small switch, I guess, from thinking about the three things I was grateful for before going to bed to actually journaling the three things I'm grateful for before going to bed. And as you may imagine, there's a big difference between thinking something in your head and actually typing it into an app or writing it on a piece of paper. Very, very, very big difference. Yeah, and there's a lot of good research out there to show that short-term gratitude tracking can actually have long-term benefits. And, uh, you know, people who keep a, a gratitude journal for an extended period of time have a rate of diminishing return, but short, uh, incisive periods of it, say two weeks of gratitude journaling at a time, and then having some time between and then, you know, randomly restarting it again can actually have very, very uh, market benefits on your overall well-being. And I think that's really, um, really cool. And I would offer to people, again, kind of in the tactical lane that Arthur was talking about, which is to say, uh, take each of these horizons beyond horizon you know, one that is above horizon one, because presumably you have a next actions list and a project or a series of projects lists already identified. But in those upper horizons, creating a list for each of those, and then start to capture what you want them to manage. They are a part of your life management system in the GTD sense. So if they're supposed to be a part of your life management system, what are they supposed to manage? And if you start to identify those questions that, you know, as Francis said, you know, answer those questions, really answer those questions in that space. So whether you use Evernote or OneNote or Apple Notes or a Word document or a Google Doc, it doesn't matter, just open up and create a document or a list for each of those horizons and just start to document for yourself what you want those areas to manage. And penultimately, they will then start to express for you what you need to, what tools you're going to need, what systems you're going to need, right? Because every system has systems within it. And so what are the systems you're going to need to manage your areas of, of focus and accountability? What are the what are the systems you're going to need to manage your short-term and your longer-term goals? What's What are the systems you're going to need to manage your purpose? may just be a paragraph in a Word document, as it is for me, uh, or a paragraph in Evernote uh, in an Evernote note that you that you keep and you reference and look at a couple times a year, and uh, you know maybe you anchor a little uh, reminder in your calendar or pin it up on your wall, print it and put it on your wall. But those systems, those ways in which you manage those particular upper horizons, start to surface once you give them attention. And so you need to put a little bit more attention on those in order to develop them. But then once you do, then they can sign, kind of rest into the background of your life and help be motivating when you need them to be. And that's what they are for me. They're, they're, they tend to be motivational for me since I can look at them and say, okay, is this spurring something? Is this helping resolve the question of why I'm working on this mundane next action, right? Call Sue about, you know, the, the uh, water tank, uh, you know, leak. Well, that's really boring. But if I step up a couple horizons and I see that in my system as, you know, being a great landlord is 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 the standard that I have set for myself, then now I can step back and say, okay, well, getting that leaky water tank fixed on the back of that property is important to me, and I'm going to do it right now. And that is that's the kind of motivation that I'm talking about. It helps take my my thought and potentially boredom uh, about that particular thing on my next actions list. And it gives me that 
push into doing that action. So I hope that helps everybody. All right, gents, this closes out this episode of Productivity Cast, the weekly show about all things personal productivity. If you have a question or a comment or something that you want to express to us here on the Productivity Cast team, please head on over to the podcast website and leave a comment on the episode itself, or you can go to productivitycast.net forward slash contact and either record a voice-based message through your browser, or you can write like type a message to us and we will get it and be happy to respond. Uh, If you need anything from the episode, everything is documented hopefully in the show notes. And so you can go over to the episode page and uh, see the show notes on the website. You can learn how to subscribe to the podcast itself if you're not already a subscriber. And if you are a subscriber and you've been listening for a while, please head over to iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you can rate or review our podcast and feel free to rate and review it and let us know how we're doing. That helps us know that we're on the right track. And it also helps bring new listeners to the podcast listening community here at Productivity Cast. And thank you. And I want to thank uh, Francis and Art for joining me here on this episode today. So thank you, gentlemen. And that brings us to the close of this episode of Productivity Cast, the weekly show about all things personal productivity. Here's to your productive life. Thank you, guys. That's it for this Productivity Cast, the weekly show about all things productivity, with your hosts, Ray Sidney Smith and Augusto Pinaud, with Francis Wade and Art Gelwicks. <laughs> <laughs>